I'm Alistair Funge, Space Policy and Operations Engineer. Hi, I'm Ron Kedar. I'm CEO of Space Product Innovation. Hi, I'm Dylan Taylor, Chairman and CEO of Voyager Space Holdings. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I'm listening to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. The government money being awarded today was planned five years ago. The concepts of operations were developed five years ago. So the, the initial mission concept reviews were done about five years ago. They worked their way through the pipeline and got down-selected for topics for funding. That typically happens about two to three years out from, from when they, they want the work to actually start. Then they get awarded the year before they want the work to start. And then in that next fiscal year, or, or, or hopefully in that same fiscal year, it kind of depends, you know, that's when work begins. And, and you know, if somebody just started their business yesterday and they think they're going to get a government contract, that's a hard pill to swallow that you got to raise your sign much earlier than a month or three months ahead of when you want to be able to start working. Welcome back to the Cold Star Project. I'm your host, Jason Kanigan, founder of Cold Star Technologies. That's why it's called the Cold Star Project, because it is a project of ours. And I'm here with Tim Anderson. He has a couple of interesting roles. Uh, I met him recently. I like the way he thinks. Uh, we had a call, a pretty extensive call, and then I uh, said, hey, you should be a guest on the show because you've got a lot of information and a perspective that would be very valuable to our listeners and viewers. So his main role is uh, with a defense contractor, and I'll let you explain what that is. Uh, it's advanced programs for defense in space, which is really cool. And then he's also a Naval Reserve commander, so watch out. Uh, he can whip things into shape pretty quick. Uh, and so we're going to talk about two things today, mainly. <laughs> there will be side topics because we both have this personality type that likes to connect the dots and uh, you know, see, see how this is connected to that and uh, follow the, the breadcrumbs kind of thing. But uh, the two main things will be Starship uh, and what it means, what the implications of having that thing, that capability around uh, happen to be, and also... Um, in his role with a, a medium-sized defense contractor, uh, how companies of that size and smaller also uh, can figure out how to get work, how to get contracts going. So thanks for being here, Tim. Oh, thank you for having me. This uh, is something I'm pretty excited about, so I think we're having a good time here today. <clears throat> you bet. All right, Commander. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's start off with that. Let, let me ask you about your uh, Naval Reserve Commander role. Uh, well, you've, you know, it's been like nine years or so that you've been at this, this particular posting and you've had a long career before that. So tell us about uh, well, it. Well, yeah, so, as a, so I'm at about the 15, 16 year point of my career in total. And in my current role, which is operational level of Aureus, I've been doing that for close to nine years now. The so operational level of war is not the you know 10-year strategy national security policy level, and it's not the face in the dirt, uh, door kicking, riding on boats level. It's 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 in between. Uh, typically, a three-star command is is who hosts those functions, and the bulk of what I do is I fill what we call purple billets, so joint billets. In, in developing the campaign plans for how we're going to deal with whatever we're trying to achieve there for our, for our national objectives. And so I will get in the room full of smart people and we will figure out how to peel the onion. And uh, typically uh, the first day, you know, after we all kind of get to know each other and, and figure each other out, by the third day, everybody's kind of looking at me saying, okay, what are we going to do? Uh, which is kind of an interesting role to have, especially uh, when you're when you're briefing the, the senior flag officers and telling them how we're going to get through all this. 
Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and you are working on a master's degree at Embry-Riddle on uh, master's of space engineering. Um, tell us about that because it's, you know, we're not spring chickens as we were just talking about before we started recording. Why would you do that? You know, so it's really interesting. I was finding that, you know, while I had lots and lots of experience in, in a, a lot of industries and, and tons of engineering background, it wasn't sort of packaged and certified nicely in a way that, that people could directly recognize. And so uh, Embry-Riddle in particular is really great with uh, veterans. I'd say about a third of my class, of every class I have minimum is veterans. Uh, and so that was really appealing for me. But, you know, I'm basically going back through and, and polishing up a few things here and there and getting some credentialing behind you know, close to 20 years of, of experience now total and in, in working in various fields. Right. And, and just, just so that people understand, you have the technical ability already. This is sort of, uh, like you say, ticking some check boxes and uh, future employers and that kind of thing might be interested in. You've got, for example... Uh, two papers going in uh, peer review right now uh, for this year's IEEE Aero Conference. Um, tell us about those papers. Yeah, so they just and, passed uh, peer review, right? The like... results came back, the final mm. results came back last night um, and uh, was, it was very humbling to, to see uh, so many positive reviews come back from those papers. So mm. the, the, the topics are basically cislunar uh, and primarily lunar surface architectures for the first paper and, and, and how we how we deal with the concepts around basing and outposts and settlements and, and how those things interact and then uh, the logistics involved with connecting those different destinations on the lunar surface and what that starts to look like and then that tees up uh, some conversations about uh, mission requirements in terms of different people looking to accomplish things on the surface, whether it's uh, science, you know, taking measurements, doing observations, understanding the, the lunar environment better, or the hard rock drilling uh, arena, something I'm really interested in learning a lot about right now. Hmm. Um, and, and they all have very different requirements, but there, are, there is some intersection there. So I, I did a, a market survey and, I'm, and the results of that are part of the paper that offer some really interesting insights and, and show a kind of a very distinct divergence in the way people are thinking about operating on the moon and, and especially in terms of uh, landed mass power requirements and things like that. And, and that's part of what we'll get into here when we talk about Starship. And then the, the second paper really presents two designs for landers uh, and, and primarily hopper vehicles, which NASA has become pretty interested in. Uh, that that service the the mid I call it mid we'll we'll get into the numbers later but uh, so, you know we're talking several metric tons to 20 metric tons range of payload capacity uh, which is you know a distinctly different shift than what we're used to most of the competition most people are competing right now in 500 to 100 kilogram payloads right now the lunar surface or hopping it around the lunar surface it's it's it changes things a lot so that's what the two papers on are on and uh, I'm really excited. It's, uh, it's come together nicely. Mm 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I look forward to digging into that uh, <laughs> later on. Um, so let's see, you've got a note here. Uh, you're constantly working on this question, and the answer is always changing at least a little bit. How are we going to make money five years from now? Uh, so tell us about arriving at that question as sort of a main filter for what you do, uh, what it means, what, what it implies, and then um, how you sure. go about it. So... My, my master's program is really heavy in unmanned systems. And in part of my role with the Navy, um, I, can, I can flip hats, right? I can be contractor Tim one day and I can be Commander Anderson the next day. And uh, in my same office, they are wrestling with some challenges concerning uh, bringing unmanned systems to the fleet and, and taking on responsibilities for service sustainment, uh, man training, equip issues surrounded with unmanned systems. Um, and so I offered to, to come in as Commander Anderson for a little bit and, and wrestle those things. And it really kind of crystallized what I see every day as, in my contractor job of, of how, how far out you have to be thinking about things when you're dealing with the government and government funding. And so, you know, I think it's always important for people to recognize that government Money being awarded today was planned five years ago. The concepts of operations were developed five years ago. Sort of the, the initial mission concept reviews were done about five years ago. They worked their way through the pipeline and, and got down selected for topics for funding. That typically happens about three, two to three years out from, from when they, they want the work to actually start. Um, then they get awarded the year before they want the work to start. And then in that next fiscal year or, or, or hopefully in that same fiscal year, it kind of depends, you know, that's when work begins. And, and, and that's a, you know, if somebody just started their business yesterday and they think they're going to get a government contract, you know, that, that's, that's a hard pill to swallow that you, know, you, you kind of, you got to raise your, raise your sign much earlier than, than a month or three months ahead of, of when you want to be able to start working. Huh. That, that is very interesting, and that explains also why uh, the pace of innovation during wartime is so much faster, uh, because that cycle of innovation and, and work, <laughs> assignment, funding, etc., is so much faster, uh, and the purse strings are uh, held by different people, probably. I mean, the way it's being distributed, right? It's, it isn't congressional funding, let's say. It, it goes down to the uh, purchasing office of the, the armed forces, maybe. Well, there, the, it's more of a lot of those capabilities were kind of on the shelf and in development already. It's mm -hmm. just that we have more leeway to accelerate them and fund them more quickly. Mm -hmm. and, and, and with that additional funding comes generally, hopefully, faster pace of delivery. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I yeah, I mean, you look at the yeah. difference between a, a B-17 and a B-29. Right. Uh, those are just a few years apart. They're very different aircraft. Um, <laughs> one, as uh, as Dan Carlin uh, in his podcast just mentioned, um, much more like the Cold War style of bomber that we're going to see for the next 50 years. Right. So interesting. OK, well, tell us about your your defense contractor role, uh, a little more about what your scope is and um, whatever you're allowed to talk about, obviously. Sure. Yeah, no, of course. So I have I have kind of two dominant paths in that you know number one the bulk of my work is i i do the 
uh, planning for the repair modernization of eight different destroyers. Uh, the work packages I manage range between 20 million and $80 million. It's typically a two year planning cycle and a one year execution cycle. So at any given time, I'm wrangling about $240 million worth of requirements. Uh, my office on the whole issues about $1.4 billion a year worth of contracts. Oh, I should say funds $1.4 billion a year worth of contracts. The, the actual issuing authority is a different organization. And so we, we will pass it over to them to, to be the custodians of pretty significant amount of money. And you, you see and you learn a lot about competition, especially in the government marketplace, about uh, the, the value of different services and, and, and different types of equipment. Uh, it, it's, it's been really fascinating to see. And I've, I've been around that for a large portion of my career. I've managed a, a lot of massive programs for the surface Navy. Uh, but, you know, really being neck deep in it now, it's, it's certainly been an eye opening thing. And then the other thing is, um, you know, business development with McKean. Uh, there's, there's a few different areas that we're really interested in. Uh, unmanned systems is certainly one of them. And so, you know, Government contracting in general is very much a you keep what you kill kind of uh, situation. So a lot of advanced programs is designed to to give birth to programs and, and whatever you whatever you land as as somebody working in the advanced program teams, you then you then go on to to lead that program uh, and continue to develop it and and uh, do good things. Okay, so the hard part is getting people interested in uh, in what you're talking about in the first place, or going. You have the credibility no, you know, to achieve. You would you would think that, but there's just there's so much need out there. It's it's staggering. There's so much opportunity, um, and, and even and you don't have to necessarily be revolutionary. Um, you can certainly be incremental and, and, and evolutionary in your approach of what you're, of the value you're trying to bring. And, and really it's about, can you, can you, can you frame it succinctly? Can you package it economically and, and can you deliver, can you make good on your promises? Right. And if you can demonstrate, if you can put those three things together, it's not hard at all to find opportunities. Um, there's, there, there's some, at the level that I work, you know, I work on a couple of different three-star commands, both as a contractor and as Commander Anderson. And there is, on you know, almost every staff I've dealt with, there's more work to do than they can handle. They're constantly making the decision of, of what to kind of push to the edge of their plate and, and deal with whatever the crisis of, of the day is. And they're, they're always looking for help on, on how to get out of that mode. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. I was talking with the comptroller's office the other day and I said, you know, we've, we've kind of shifted our mindset. We'd, we'd much, we'd much rather hire, uh, a few contractor positions then then generate new government service positions mm. because we're finding that we're we're able to get more done that way and, and more quickly so you know I, I don't i don't my point is i don't think there's a lot of hard selling that has to be done i, I think just some very reasonable conversations and and then and, and showing that you've got the you got the ability to deliver is gets you a really really long way 
Okay. <laughs> well, that was a, a very insightful answer and the kind of answer you can only get from, uh, you know, boots on the ground for years, right? So I appreciate that a lot. Uh, I guess on the deck in, in your case yes. there. Yes. All yes. right. So let's talk about what you have seen in terms of what government and VCs are looking for uh, in terms of who, who's going to be making money, who is capable of actually expanding in that. Um, what I'm looking for here is like our audience, uh, some of them are executives at medium-sized companies, some of them are founders at small companies. Um, what kind of process is available to them and what does that look like from your perspective? What works? Sure. So the here's what I'm consistently finding across uh, both government and VCs is, you know, they want they want startups to be successful, but they don't want to be the only customer for a startup. Um, they they want the startups to kind of show they've got what it takes with that outside of the world of federal funding. Um, and so that leads, you know, almost you know, directly to medium companies that are already established have got, you know, 30, 30, 40 employees who are really doing work right now. And it's very easy to understand how they make money and how they deliver value and who their customers are and why their customers are willing to pay them and will continue to pay them. Right. And, and NASA said that point blank repeatedly, like we're not looking to be a company's only customer anymore because um, it, it just it creates it creates risks for the company and it creates risks for uh, the government. At the same time. My impression is that the government's looking to get out of a lot of the sole source relationships that they've had for a long time, uh, especially with some of the legacy primes. Um, there's a there's a lot of pressure, uh, both in terms of overall program, but all but especially financially, to to make some changes um, and to figure out how to get faster innovation, more value, uh, those kinds of things. And, and costs are going up, especially for some of our sole sources. So we there's some components that we're paying triple the price we were two years ago, hmm. and we have to. We, because if you don't have that specific component that's that's sole source to, to one provider, you have a better and critical mission area, and so you you know as as the government customer you don't we don't have a choice, mm -hmm. right? We'd love to have a choice, but we don't, and so there's lots of opportunities like that, and and you know I can't go into huge detail on them, but. Um, they're numerous and they're not hard to find with a little bit of business acumen and, and, and business intelligence in terms of digging into what those things are. And what I'm consistently finding, so, you know, I watch ship repair contracts get awarded every day, right? And it's conversations that I have every day. And I'm finding this interesting consistency where, you know, if we've got four or five different shipyards bidding on the same contract, the pricing dynamics change a lot from if I've only got one or two shipyards bidding, bidding on a pricing, bidding pricing on a, on a contract. And, you know, that, that seems obvious and, and reasonably intuitive when we say it, but when you look across the whole landscape of government contracting, there's so many contracts where there's one, two, maybe three bids, and that's it. There's a lot of stuff that gets sole sourced. Um, you know, if you dig around on SAM.gov, just on the NASA section, 
dig around for about two hours. And what you will find is that you'll quickly find about $40 million worth of contracts that are sole sourced. Hmm. Okay. That's just with, with, with only a couple hours of digging, right? And, and when you read the description of the work being done, you know, I'm, I've met and learned a lot of capabilities of different companies in the space industry. I'm like, well, no, I can find three companies that can do that. They don't have to sole source this. Hmm. Um, you know, so, so there's, there's a lot out there. Sam is, Sam is not the easiest tool to use. I've seen plenty of rants about it. And so I get it. I commiserate with, with those people. Um, but you know, that, you know, finding sole source is, is kind of a low hanging fruit. And then when you're, if, if you're a medium sized company and you want to be that prime contractor who carries along a few other small companies, you know, that's how, how that's how you present yourself. You say, okay, uh, you know, here's the work to be done, or here's what I've, I've seen in the, re, in the request for proposals. Here's our team, you know, preferably made up of mostly U.S. companies or all U.S. companies. So if you're dealing with the U.S. government, here's what each of them brings. And, you know, that same question you have to answer for yourself of, you know, how do I make money now? Why am I a stable partner to work with? You have to answer that for your subs as well. And, and so if you can present that package nicely, then, then you're going to win. And, and we've, and we've seen that uh, with a lot of different companies hmm. and it's, it's not just the mediums, you know, Lockheed Martin in particular is, is a large prime is really trying to uh, show themselves in that light as somebody who's a champion for smaller businesses, who, who's willing to quarterback these larger projects and, and uh, make things come together. And they've tried to distinguish themselves from their competition in that in that area as well. Uh, but VCs looking for the same thing, I and mean, they they get you know dozens of pitches a day from a startup that was founded yesterday that's got the next best thing, and they're they're just not interested. Yep. You know, they want a medium-sized established company that that is looking to take in some new capital to expand what they're already doing. I think, and you had a guest on before. I can't remember his name right now, uh, who is talking about constantly running into small companies that are looking to execute their exit strategy hmm. and that's not what they're interested in right and, and, you, and you just need to sit back a little bit as a business-minded person to understand that and it, it's not you know it's not esoteric mm -hmm. in any way it's it's pretty straightforward yeah, it leads to an interesting question that I'm going to have to answer for myself of which season to put this episode in, two or three, because we are talking about investing. But then again, we're also going to be quite technical. So, so right. if, you're, if you're a startup founder, a couple of takeaways that you should have from, from Tim here are, uh, first of all, the funding <laughs> started five years ago or will be there maybe five years from now. Uh, so don't expect to find a government customer for what you're offering uh, right away. Uh, best thing to do is to go out and get a customer, which I will bang the drum on every day. Uh, go out and find a, a commercial customer for it. And also, uh, what Tim is saying is, if you're a small company, go and find a uh, medium-sized uh, contractor acting as a prime to organize you, right? Organize yourself around and uh, be the fulfillment um, part of, but also keep looking for other customers because they're going to have to explain to the end customer, the government, um, how you you are stable as well, uh, and not just depending on this one relationship. So, so that is very interesting. 
Um, and I like that you're pointing out, look, if you're a startup, you're not going to make money right away, at least not from, from this sort of arrangement. Uh, you're going to have to go out and, and find a, a customer in that. Let's um, move on then to, uh, to SpaceX's Starship. Uh, you know, sure. we, we have this capability. It's come along. And you, with your perspective of looking out, you know, five years into the future, the mid-range, uh, how are we going to use this? How are we going to make money? What's it going to drive in that? Um, and, and it's interesting because Michael Mealing, the, the VC, has commented on this as well many times. Um, and he's, he does this publicly, so I'm not putting words in his sure. mouth. He's like, I, I don't know what this capacity is going to be for. Like, who's going to use it uh, kind of thing. And so I'm, I'm very interested in hearing your answer because you're going to uh, fill in some of those blanks possibly. So hopefully he'll, <laughs> he'll listen up. So why is Starship important and what in your view is it going to enable uh, to be done? Sure. So, you know, I always kind of preface my, any conversation I have about SpaceX with sort of the idea of I've gotten everybody to generally agree that it may not be wise to bet on SpaceX, but it's certainly unwise to bet against them. Mm and you know so I, I try to make sure i'm not painting myself as some you know rabid spacex found boy who just buys into whatever the narrative is I, I really sit down and i examine what's going on with them um so a few different things you know, you know so we see lots of content being produced about starship and, and we won't dive into that but you know at, at a very basic level there's a couple of things that spacex does that are very distinct one the, the user guides that they publish are very easy, very easy to get your hands on, tell you a lot about the capabilities and tell you a lot of things that you need to know if you're gonna design for using their platform. Uh, they're excellent. Uh, they're, they're a really great template for any company providing any service. Like the companies need to push out user guides so people can understand how to use your products. Um, especially for guys like me, systems engineers, like I need I need to know what I need enough to design with so I can design systems into your systems and, and design your systems into my systems. And if I can't find those materials or they're difficult to find, well then, you know, it gets difficult to recommend your, your, your product or service to decision makers. Um, but in terms of Starship, so let's look at bare bones, you know, what is that capability? We're looking at probably a minimum of hundred metric tons to Leo inside of a 685 cubic meter volume. Uh, the, the price estimates per launch have been as low as 2 million, um, but I like to assume about 10 million. You know, whatever, whatever figure Elon puts out, I try and inflate that a healthy amount uh, to give us a, a, a better figure. But if you do the quick math on that, you know, fortunately 100 is easy to divide with, so if he, if he is launching at 2 million, if he gets there, you know, 20 years from now or 10 years from now, if he's in high volume production, you're looking at $20 a kilogram. And a lot of people have talked about that number. Let's say each launch is 10 million. You're looking at $100 a kilogram. But here's the other way you can look at it. If he charges $100 million per launch, that's still $1,000 a kilogram. And that still undercuts the, the low end of the launch market by about 75%, which is also SpaceX. Mm. So he can undercut himself by 75% and still make probably $90 million profit per launch. Mm. 
you know, that's substantial. Um, and, and, and still while providing a a huge amount of lift capacity at, at, at a low cost. And so, you know, in, you know, part of what we're, we really want to get to in discussion is, is what are the impacts of that, but you, you got to frame all of that to really understand, like, even if his costs are 50 times what he's advertising, he still undercuts the best in the market by 75%. Mm. And that, that's a really wide margin for error and still being tremendously po- profitable while delivering a massive amount of value. Mm. So it, it's not something that we should, should be dismissed lightly. I'd love to see that happen for New Glenn as well. Um, don't have as much information on New Glenn. It's not as easy to dig into what they're doing, um, and and obviously not as not as public. But so let's let's talk about kind of where that leads to. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's a few different variants of Starship that we know of right now, or they're being discussed. So you've got near Earth cargo. Um, there's some talk about near Earth crude, the tanker variant, suborbital cargo, sub suborbital crude cislunar cargo and uh, orbital, orbital debris maneuver removal just came out mars cargo mars crude i mean that that right there is several different variants and, and that by itself is an important point hmm. extrapolate this out to the idea of spacex and starship being produced like teslas hmm. okay if you can if you're mass producing a vehicle of any kind at a price point that a sizable population can afford it and use it for their own purposes, you know, there's something there. It would, I would not be surprised at all if several years down the pipe, people, companies are purchasing a Starship for 20, 30, $40 million or leasing it, outfitting it, to their own ends and means and, and providing their own services. You know, I think that's part of where we're yeah. heading here. And so what does that, what does that look like and what can that look like for people? And we'll use a few examples. So, you know, let's just start with the first variant that we talked about, talked about near, near earth Leo, you know, Leo geo cargo. Um, you know, geo has got a lot of old systems there that are, that need to be updated. Um, there's a lot of, debris, you know, floating in pretty premium orbits that, that can be removed. So that's an important service. And then just, just updating the, the infrastructure that we have in geo that provides services here on earth. So, you know, to be able to have low access, I mean, low cost access to geo is, is a, is a big deal. The, when you get into near earth crude, you know, we've got a few different people competing in that, um, you know, if you're talking about a vehicle that's designed for operating in orbit for two to 24 hours, you know, there's a lot of your commercial tourism market right there. And if you, if you look at the net heavy volume studies from NASA, you know, you can, there's a lot of things that you can learn from those. The quick numbers are uh, for up to two weeks, you know, kind of the minimum is 19 cubic meters and the ideal is 38 for more than six months. It's the minimum is 25 cubic meters and they, um, and generally about double is, is sort of the luxurious ideal. Well, with those numbers, you're looking at probably 50 people could easily comfortably fit in a, in a, in a visit type scenario variant of, of Starship. 
for and go up there for two to 24 hours. And so with those numbers, you're looking at $200,000 per person. If you're doing a $10 million launch, $200,000 is a, is a great price point. Uh, then you look at how it's impacting other space tourism companies, right? Virgin Orbit's talking about 250,000 for a 90 minute flight. You've got $200,000. You can strap yourself to a rocket and ride for 90 minutes and pray all your vital organs work when you come back. Um, or take a smooth ride, hang out there for, you know, 10 hours and be able to actually, you know, unstrap from your chair, float around, do stuff, come back down. You know, the, you know, the, there's, there's some pretty strong arguments made there and pretty strong comparisons. If you get into intermediate, you know, 24 hours to two weeks, you can host about 35 people there, you know, based on the, on the net level of volumes we've discussed and we've discussed. And, you know, so that, that same scenario plays out, but then where it really starts to get interesting is the long duration missions is six month missions, which you can generally host about 13 people using the, the volumes that we've talked about. So right now, our primary vehicle that we host 13, excuse me, the primary vehicle that we host six month missions on right now is the ISS, right? And I, I would have to talk with you know we'd have to talk to somebody like NanoRacks that that really deals in in commercial science experiments things like that and knows the duration of these experiments to to know the real numbers, but you know if you've got a variant of Starship that deploys up there for six months, and then you know does good science comes back down, you could you could replace a lot of the functionality of the International Space Station, mm. and probably at, at a significantly reduced cost. Uh, and that's that's pretty substantial because I mean there's there's a massive backlog of experiments that people want to get onto the ISS but can't because of time, money, space available, all those things. Um, so you're going to rapidly accelerate the amount of the quantity and of throughput of microgravity experiments hmm. in a big big way, and you're going to do it for a lot less money. Uh, so that's important. The and there's companies like I mentioned, NanoRacks that are perfectly positioned to take advantage of that. You know, if you if you want to understand how to make money in space, um, you know, as as a commercial enterprise, they're Exhibit A. Hmm. They're a garage. They're literally a garage startup, um, and have have made their way through and, and are, are providing services and, and carrying up payloads for a, a huge. A diverse international group of customers. Um, so I think the partnership there is going to be huge, um, and they and they know all of the various standardized rack configurations and interface configurations that are already on the ISS that experiments are already designed for. So they could put those same rack systems in a six-month uh, variant of IS of uh, Starship and just start to kill that backlog in a hurry. Um, so th I think they're going to do really well if they if they get on that. Um, the other interesting thing is, you know, what is the distinction for ISS and uh, Axiom's commercial uh, station after after Starship? And I think the distinction is is missions longer than six months. And so, you know, there's there's an important question to ask there of okay, how big is that market? 
and and is that going to be enough to sustain this business and, and uh, sustain their business model? And so there's definitely going to need some examination because if you have, you know, two, three starships that are capable of doing six month rotations and they're trading off with each other and they're carrying up 10 to 13 people at a time, you know, that's, that's a big deal. Uh, it's going to have a huge impact compared to, you know, two or three people going up, you know, for a significantly higher cost. Um, the entertainment industry is going to be impacted in a big way, right? So we've got Tom Cruise flying up to the ISS here soon, right? And people are pretty jazzed about that. Well, if you can, if you can fly an entire camera crew and, and six star actors up there and do a two-week shoot and come back down at a tenth of the cost of, of what you were planning on with uh, just dragon rides up there, that, that changes things, right? So there's all these different uses for the the leo variants that go up to six months and they're going to have to design those capabilities anyway for the, the mars the crewed mars missions right because just because of the travel time so the, those those designs are going to happen the tanker variant is going to happen we've talked about that they've already started to look at contracts for suborbital cargo uh, with the military and defense so um you know, i think people can start to examine you know, is there is there something big and critical enough that the, the price points are, are, are going to be worth, you know, you know moving things around uh, with that. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the show and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I want to share with you a new idea. This is very exciting. It's a partnership between myself and another fellow who's a former Marine, a space junkie, a guy who has a lot of experience with uh, like Ogilvy and marketing, and he's also a junior venture capitalist. And some of you may know that I've been a copywriter myself for 25 years and made a lot of money for myself and clients. And so we are partnering up along with a legal team and junior associates. It's very exciting to be able to do something. This is, here's the exciting part for you, okay? If you're a founder and you're interested in like, hey, where's the venture capital? We, we see this a lot, right? You need a bunch of stuff to be able to qualify for venture capital, including like customers. <laughs> and in order to get there, you need stuff like branding and teams and like a business model and all this stuff. And I find a lot of founders, and you ask yourself this question and tell me the truth, right? Tell yourself the truth. You don't even have to tell anybody else. Do you understand all those things that we just talked about? Or do you just want to build cool stuff? And that is the position where we find a lot of people are in. But look, this Project Space Boots that we're looking at here, here's our mission, okay? We're, we're what's called a venture builder. We're seeking to provide venture capital, marketing strategy, and networking for brands, companies, their teams, individuals. Here's the niche, okay? If you're seeking to add value to the seven space power disciplines as defined by the Chief of Space Operations for the United States Space Force, we want to talk to you. And if you don't know what that is, go to Space Capstone Publications and get the PDF for free. You could buy the hardcover book if you love flipping through catalogs like I do. But the PDF will do, okay? So here's who we're looking for. Pre-seed and seed stage startup companies looking to enter these seven disciplines, one of them. And we are going to provide the help at this pivotal stage. Most importantly, the storytelling, pitching the big idea, that's what you need help with here, is that positioning, the branding, the storytelling, and that will get you the access. That will get you the stuff you need to get access to that venture capital. We are going to help you craft a winning narrative on this 
increasingly complex road to funding. We're very excited about this, being able to offer this. It's something that I'd sort of daydreamed about over the last six months or so, and suddenly found a partner to be able to fulfill the idea with. If you are in that realm, if you understand what I'm saying and the potential that uh, this is bringing to the table, come talk to us. You can just email me or connect with me on LinkedIn and message me there. Because if you're in one of those disciplines, you should be talking to us about the Space Boots Project, the world's first space tech venture builder for the Allied Space Forces. Super excited. Let's get back to the interview. With that type of vehicle. Uh, the cis-lunar cargo liner is, is kind of an interesting situation. You know, as I work in the Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium and as I examine cis-lunar architectures, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of discussion about hydrogen versus methane architectures. And where's the value at? Where's the money to be made? And, and how are we going to get things done? And there, there's trades with both. We haven't really figured out a, a great way to make a lot of methane on the moon yet. Um, but what is known is that you know whoever whoever is landing the biggest vehicles on the moon is going to have the biggest propellant demand right and so there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity to be gained if somebody solves that problem about methane on the moon or spacex could look at it and say you know what for cislunar space we're going to go with hydrogen we're going we're just we'll we'll suck up the the cost of the boil off or maybe uh, folk, uh, Lockheed Martin's been digging after uh, hydrogen storage systems for for years now, and they've pu published some really great papers on them. Uh, you know, they they crack that nut in terms of in space storage uh, and deal with power issues associated with active cooling. You know, that's certainly a game changer. So a, a hydrogen variant of Starship would would certainly be a big deal as well. But either way, whether they're running on hydrogen, whether they're running on methane, they're going to be one of the biggest customers for propellant in the system or economy, hands down. So that's something that's important. Um, and you know, NASA's already acknowledged it kind of with, with their recent Tipping Points Awards. And I know you've got you've got other folks like Daniel Faber who, who get it and, and understand that reuse, reusability is, is not really fully realized until you have sort of regeneration capability at whatever your destination is. And so, and, and so if we're really going to drive the cost down and really get our expansion going, uh, you know, cryogenic fluid management is a big deal. And that's why you saw those tipping point awards here recently. Uh, and we've got to be able to figure that out. And so there's a lot of opportunity there and, and money's already flowing. Um, but, you know, the other thing is, you know, right now, Starship's talking about trying to get 100 metric tons on the moon. Even if they jump, even if they drop down to 25 metric tons, and made that trade for being able to get get enough delta v to get down and back the the moon's gravity well, it's you know they need about five kilometers per second to get down and back comfortably and safely from a 200 kilometer orbit. 25 metric tons is still still way overshadows a lot of the other capabilities out there. You know, so when we talk about, you know, who's trying to land stuff on the moon, uh, you've got Astrobotic, Mastin, Intuitive Machines, and Lockheed Martin that are all competing in the 100-kilogram payload range. Um, and Astrobotic's also trying to go for about the 500-kilogram payload range. 
The next closest at about 1300 kilograms is, is the human lander system. And so you've got Dynetics and Blue Origin kind of looking at that. And then, you know, Blue Moon, I've seen different numbers out there. Uh, and same with Mast and Zeus, up to about four and a half thousand uh, kilograms, so four and a half metric tons. And, that, and that's where it stops. And then the next jump is Starship at a at 100 metric tons. So even if they came in at 25, they're still going to overshadow the competition by a factor of four. Mm -hmm. Okay. And and not have to deal with the waiting around for, uh, you know, being able to produce methane on on the surface of the moon. Uh, so there's there's a lot hap that ca that can happen there, um, and I'm, you know, I'm. I'm probably not the only person thinking about that. There's there's probably people in their in their own offices uh, that are doing you know kind of like the the story we talked about uh, last time we talked where uh, I had submitted an abstract for the uh, Starship for orbital active orbital debris maneuver back in July of this year and the announcement just came out. Mm -hmm. I, was, I'm sure there was probably somebody in Star in SpaceX's offices in July also thinking about these things. Um, and so that leads us to the next one, actually, is the orbital debris maneuver removal system. You know, so like the announcement that came out recently, I initially envisioned sort of a monster of the whale swallowing Pinocchio kind of thing where the jaw opens up, grabs it, and, and then, uh, you know, maneuvers into a, a different orbit for, for disposal. And... You know, I batted that idea around with a few engineers, and, and the biggest thing that came up was exhaust plume impingement. You know, the, the massive power of the Raptor engines are going to put out a huge exhaust plume. It's going to impact a lot of things. So as, and as I study the problem more, here's kind of what I think is most likely going to happen, is that you're going to end up with kind of a hybrid between the, the current cargo variant that we see most of the time with the whale mouth and the uh, lunar version of Starship. And the reason I say that is that having that smaller propulsion system that has a much smaller exhaust plume uh, footprint is, is probably going to be important to dealing with, with the debris removal problems. Because what you don't want to do is keep blasting away your target with your exhaust plume, right? That's mm -hmm. what the concern is. Um, you know, they're going to combine that with some out-of-plane maneuvers for their approaches, which is, you know, there's plenty of studies on that that show that that's, that's the, the best way to get things done. And then, you know, I, I strongly suspect that there will be a couple of robotic arms involved because that, you know, significantly increases your, your capture area. And so I kind of envision two robotic arms sort of stretching out of the, of the whale's mouth, grabbing the target, pulling it in and either and pinning it against a bulkhead or depositing it in some kind of a container, depending on what the, what kind of mission they're going after. They're going after the really big stuff. They'll just, they'll pin it against a bulkhead to keep it from banging around in there. Um, if they're going for several smaller objects, they'll probably try and store them. Another option would be uh, in orbit servicing. And so, you know, imagine a third or fourth robotic arm in there that's got a, a wine rack of tools Right, so the big arms grab it, hold it in place, or turn it and flip it however needed, and then your other two arms are grabbing tools and doing work. There's there's ample space to to support that kind of thing. So you know, those, those all these different ideas. I don't 
the reason I bring all these different ideas up is I don't suspect this, that SpaceX is wanna, gonna wanna build every one of these variants. They're probably looking for people to partner with who are already developing these robotic arms and, mm. and things like that. You know, Relativity Space has got you know, uh, these, these 3D printing arms. Uh, Outpost Program from NanoRacks has got a, a tool changing arm that they're, they're working on. There's plenty of CNC robots that have got tool changing arms. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of partners who could get involved there and help realize all that because um, it's kind of Mars or bust for SpaceX, right? So there's, there's all these other opportunities for these medium-sized companies to jump in and figure out how to do good things. Um, we, you, we can continue to move down that, but that, there's, that's a whole range of applications for Starship that just jump out, you know, immediately. And that's, you know, that's me only putting, you know, six hours probably worth of thought into that. Um, if somebody wanted to really nug down and do some studies and, and, and figure some things out, even if you just went back to some of the commercial, uh, Leo commercial studies that have been published out there, you know, there's, there's lists and lists and lists of commercial opportunities. And so you, you figure out, okay, you know, assume I can, I can kit out a, a Starship for 20 million and I can launch it for cost of 10 million per launch, you know, what does that mean for my, how, how can I make a business model around that? Or how does that change my business? Um, I think the other thing that's in, in terms of opportunity the Starship presents is, you know, being able to get a lot of payloads that are flying now deeper into space, right? So I've had a lot of conversations about lunar, lunar mining. Um, and like I said, there's a, there's a significant divergence between the space companies that want to get into mining, usually startups that aren't making a lot of money right now. They may be providing some like engineering services or things like that, but their robots aren't actually making money right now. Mm -hmm. Most of most of the ones that I see, I'm not speaking for all of them. And then my, the other population that I talk to is mining companies who are making money right now doing mining that are interested in working in space. And, and the way those two paradigms go about the, their business is completely different. And so the hard rock mining guys are saying, hey, look, if we're not going to go 100 meters down and, and we're not going to drill hundreds, if not thousands of holes and, and get all sorts of centers down there and cross-hole tomography and, and all sorts of other stuff going, I, you know, what are, we, what are we really talking about here? You know? They're, they're not interested in poking one or two meters down in the regolith and, and saying, yep, there's still dirt here. Um, they, have, they just have a completely different way of thinking. And so these heavy payload, these big payload capacities enable those kinds of architectures for actually finding, you know, what would be categorized as a resource, a reserve, excuse me, that you can, you can actually, you know, make some serious money off of those things and, and get down to 100, 200 plus meter depths and, and more. Uh, I've seen some fascinating designs that uh, uh, have tremendous uh, capability in terms of, of, of getting down hundreds of meters into whatever the target is and, and really understanding what's down in there instead of collecting some rocks and, and, and some, uh, some granules on the surface. Not that that's thing stuff's not important. I, mean, I don't want to be dismissive of it. You know, great science is always great science and it's always valuable. 
Um, it's just valuable to different people in different ways. Um, so the other thing, you know, in, in you know how you and I got introduced is the CubeSat space. So mm -hmm. maybe let's talk about that for a little bit, if you like. Sure. Um, get a quick sip here. So I got involved in CubeSats in 2012. Um, so I've been around that that space for quite a while, and I've watched a lot of change. Um, you know the the urban legend is that uh, Dr. Twig started it uh, after being sort of frustrated with his students wanting to build bigger, bigger, bigger satellites and never never be able to get things done and. Finally, picked up a Beanie Baby box and said, "This is your, this is your standard. You know, get it in this." And that was the birth of the CubeSat standard. So to speak. I've, I've met Dr. Quiggs a few times. Wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, but I've never asked him if that was actually true. So I, I've got to make it a point to actually ask him. Um, you know, so the CubeSat standard, one U, which is is 100 millimeters cubed, and uh, the the max payload, me, max maximum mass is supposed to be about 1.4 kilograms. Uh, per U, and that scales a little bit. So when you get into your three U's, I think it's around 4.3 kilograms for a three U. Here's here's some things that we know. So the the full service pricing for launch, you know, doing a lot of the testing and integration and and, and getting the ride up and and getting the launch was in 2013. If you, if you take the pricing that I, was, that I was seeing in 2013 and you adjust it up to now, a lot of those companies have taken their pricing off their websites. Um, but you're looking at about $80,000 per U for commercial and about $40,000 per U for educational payloads. So if you're looking at a 3U, you're talking about $120,000 to $240,000. So that price point's important. So we know, because it's been done a, a lot, that Commercial companies are willing to pay $240,000 for a 3U launch, and that educational education is willing to pay $120,000 for a 3U launch. Um, so there's a couple ways you can look at it, and, and you know we, we can examine it from the extremes first. You know, is the future 10,000 6U CubeSats being launched because the prices have come way, way down? Well, NASA would have a fit. And so would probably a lot of the, the space community of having all of having all those little CubeSats uh, out there, you know, hopefully with shorter mission times because the the uh, the cost of launch has come down. They have to keep them up as long to get their get their demonstrations done or do their science. Um, or, you know, is the future much bigger stand uh, much bigger standard, say one meter cubed? becomes the new standard. We'll call it a KU for this conversation, right? Or a KU's becoming, you're going to become the main thing because of the price point has come down to what a one U used to be. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, I think the, the real answer when you talk about stream, any extreme pair of extremes like that is probably somewhere in the middle. But I think that's really worth exploring is, hey, you know, what is, what does it look like when you can launch one cubic meter uh, cubes for the same price of what you used to be able to launch 100 meter, 100 millimeter cubes for, you know that's that's kind of a big deal. It unleashes a lot of capability. I've designed several cube sets. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a purist. I like to stick to the 3U plus standard. Um, the 6U, the 6U is super handy as well. But you know when you 
when you have 10 times as much volume and, and payload capacity, it, it just it just opens up so much in terms of demonstration and getting things going. Um, you know, so I think that's important to recognize is, is, is there are going to be some changes there. Uh, part of the papers that I've, I'm going to be presenting in March also start to discuss the expansion of the CubeSat standard, uh, kind of going in, in a different direction. So we, we've talked about all these different variants of Starship and these space vehicles that can be, you know, either taken up as a payload or incorporated into the Starship itself. Um, I think that there's an opportunity for the expanding the CubeSat standard to standardize the hardware in space, larger space vehicles. So let's take an example. Let's say a CO2 scrubber, right? If you can, if you can fit a full CO2 scrubber system in one of these KU forms that we've talked about, one meter cubed, and you publish that as the standard and, and say, okay, NASA, these three big primes and these three medium companies are all saying they're interested in vendors designing CO2 scrubbers that are in, at one KU. And here, and, and you know, you can locate the power connections in, in one of these corners and, and that's what we're going to do. Now you got up to 10 vendors that can compete in that. And, and they, and if one falls through, we've got nine others that were already designing to that standard and or if one's got better technology, maybe they come along a little bit later, right? Somebody, somebody's first across the finish line, they design some really great, great technology. You get it in your system, it works, but it's, it's kind of expensive and, and maybe could be more efficient. And the next guy comes along designed to the same, that, that same, compartment size and, and he gets 10% more efficiency and 20% less cost. Well, now you, you pull off the old rack, you slap in the new one and you go. Um, you know, that kind of standardization is, is something that I, I see the industry uh, cry out for a lot. Um, NASA has very pointedly said, hey, we're not going to become a regulatory authority and we're not going to become a standards producing organization. We're going to do science. Um, but what I have not heard them say is I haven't heard them express an, uh, an unwillingness to fund the development and publication of those standards. And so I think that's a really interesting conversation that can be had with the, the, the tech, science technology mission directorates and some of the other folks there at NASA and say, okay, got it. You, you guys don't want to be in the business of, of designing, building, and maintaining the standards um, as, as far as in-house, you know, but are you interested in continuing to, in, in funding them? You know, kind of like the, the international docking standard, um, which is another Another big business opportunity there that the standard needs a significant update and overhaul uh, if, if there's a medium-sized company out there looking for work. Um, you know, so there's, there's all these different things, you know, that, that, that can change significantly, um, you know, with, with the implementation of, of the Starship program. The other thing that I think is interesting is, you know, so we just saw all the publicity for Sophia, right? And in the background of that is a lot of discussions about whether or not Sophia is going to continue to fly because of the cost of maintaining the program. Well, what happens if you take Sophia off that 747 and you put it into a Starship? And I think it's what people have got to understand is Starship is designed to be the 747 of the space industry. 
And if you just take that model and expand that out, a, a lot of the opportunities become obvious really quick. Boeing doesn't operate all the 747s that they build, right? It's it's United and Delta and 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 and, and FedEx and all these. Those are the ones who operate the aircraft. And interestingly enough, the payload capacity of a 747 is I believe I'd have to go check. I want to say 120, 130 metric tons. Conveniently about the same ballpark as what suborbital Starship is designed for. I mean, there's, there's probably a lot of intent behind that. And so people who are asking, you know, what is Starship going to do for the space industry? Well, you know, if you had, if you had a 747 for the space industry, Starship is it and all the things you're doing with the 747 right now, you know, what does that look like for a suborbital, or near-Earth variant of that capacity. If a 747 could go to space, what would you do with it? Hmm. Ask that question. That is brain-changing. I, I think you just said the quote I'm going to pull for the front of the episode <laughs> about, about it being the 747. For the, because that, that is a different perspective. You have changed my perspective in that one instant about uh, who's going to operate these things, right? Because uh, I'd been thinking, oh, SpaceX is going to launch one of these one at a time, you know, and, and what if you have fleets of them out there operated by different people with different branding and purposes and that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's where he, he, I think that's where they, you know, in the, in over the next 10 years, he's kind of going to have to do that, mm-hmm. right. To get the revenue coming in to, to, mm-hmm. so, I mean, if, yeah, so let's, let's diverge slightly onto a Mars colony. Right, so a Mars colony to be self-sustaining is gonna have to have about 5,000 people, okay? And if you're only able to carry about 20 people at a time, you know, the math works out to a pretty substantial number of starships. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, and is he ever gonna be able to afford that? Well, when you're making $90 million per launch, or you had the option to make $90 million per launch, yeah, that can get funded, right? Or if you're selling off Mm -hmm. starships for 20 to 30 million, a piece and you're making 80% profit margins on them, you know, and, and still just slaughtering competition. You know, that's, that's a sustainable business model. Right. Um, but yeah, and so I'm, I'm glad you, you raised that point, but you know, then the other interesting question is, well, what happens to companies like Firefly relativity, and all these others that are, that are trying to target the smaller CubeSats and, and, and these smaller payloads in kind of a, a niche market. Um, you know, I think it's worth saying, I don't want to see any space company fail. Um, and I hope, I hope as many as, as possible kind of get out of their own way and, and, and understand that the, don't see Starship as a threat, but see it as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, to, and to continue to use, you know, Relativity and Firefly, they, they build beautiful spacecraft. They do. Um, you know, they, they've got these great manufacturing lines that they're putting together. They've got these robotic, robotic manufacturing capabilities that, you know, whether you're using them here on Earth or whether you're using them for on-orbit assembly, they're, they're tremendously... Uh, capable machines and you know instead of you know falling on their sword I hope that they they see the opportunities to, to kit out a, a starship or to or to put a payload in, in a cargo variant starship and deploy 
a, a hundred metric ton spacecraft in whatever orbit they want to go do work because mm -hmm. um, they've certainly got the, te the technical capabilities to, to build those kind of spacecraft and now and now they've got the, the the access and the enabler so you know i think that's an important point as well um so yeah so i've kind of gone all over the place and uh Fortunately, saved your your voice a little bit, so because I know you got a bit of a tickle there. But um, is there any other topics you'd like to cover or expand on a little bit that you can snip from? I know I just threw up information all over I you. Mean, yeah, we just we just covered so much. Uh, I do want to have you on again. Um, I think sure. we wait a couple weeks or months, something like that, and allow sure. some uh, formation of ideas. But you've already changed my perspective of what could be, uh, which is extremely valuable to me. Uh, hopefully to, to the audience. Um, I guess one question I have before we go is like SpaceX has always wanted to integrate and keep in house all of the things, uh, you know, in their, in their manufacturing and that. Um, how, how do you, how do you balance that out or, or, or reconcile that with this need that you're pointing out to partner up with companies who have capabilities such as the robotic arms and that kind of thing to combine, to create a, relatively unique product right for for this use over there um is is spacex going to have to change its mind about that and and be more comfortable about it or uh is some other mental shift going to have to take place yes so there's a couple different answers to that uh, number one i don't think we have to change spacex's mind because if they if they weren't interested in having people integrate and interface with mm -hmm. with them you know, as, as a, as a large payload, then they wouldn't publish such a robust user's guide. <laughs> Good point. I think yeah. that they're, I think that they're very interested in, in having people bring a lot of ideas of what Starship could do um, and how they would do it. You know, I think that, you know, apart from launch and recovery, you know, if, if you're not, if you're not trying to control the launch and trying to control the recovery, and if you're not doing something that's dangerous for the, sp the spacecraft overall, I think SpaceX is going to be very open to people coming with ideas saying, hey, you know what? I want to, I want to design this debris removal variant of Starship. You handle the, the launch and recovery. But, you know, once we get above the Kármán line and into a stable orbit, you know, my operations center takes over and we go do work. Hmm. I, I have, I'd be really surprised if they're opposed to that. And so somebody who can scrape together, um, I think you can do it for under 30 million, um, depending on how, what your fully burden mandate rate is and, and how efficient you really are. You may even be able to get it down to like 10 mil for a really like crack team um, to, to kit out a starship to be able to do that kind of work. And, you know, if, if you're, so long as you're paying for the time and, and, Right. So, you know, their, their business discussion will be, okay, so I've got a starship that's maybe underutilized and I, I'm launching it once a week vice, you know, launching it every four months, you know, and I get paid to launch, mm -hmm. you know, so where's the trade there? Uh, I think if people can come through, I think if, if partner companies in SpaceX can come through those conversations, I think that they're going to be able to, to find a solution. I think, apart from that so let's get back into you know briefly into the, the space vehicle design so if you've got a space vehicle that carries propellant that you want to deploy from starship right that's those kind of landers are what i've proposed in my papers um you know i think that 
you know, there'll have to be some, you, you may have to subcontract to SpaceX to design that, that propellant storage system and that propellant distribution system simply because it ensures the, the, the safety of the overall mm-hmm. vehicle, right? And I, and I, you know, if you're a spacecraft designer and, and, you, and you want access, I think you'd probably be willing to make some accommodation there to, to subcontract SpaceX to let them design the, the, the things that they care the most about. Um, and, and kind of everybody wins there. Mm-hmm. So I think there's plenty of opportunities for everybody wins relationships to emerge. And um, I don't really foresee a lot of opposition. And what a lot of people don't know is actually SpaceX contracts, subcontracts out a lot of stuff. Uh, they don't, a lot of their subs don't, and vendors don't talk about it, but I've, I've personally met subs for SpaceX, um, and I've observed other subs for SpaceX, especially in the CNC machining space. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so they're, they're definitely open to those, those parts. They don't do absolutely everything in-house. So those relationships already exist. Um, and I, and I think there's, you know, I think, I think, you know, the old, the, the reasonable person standard, which may not be the standard anymore nowadays, depending on how you see things, uh, I think will prevail in that kind of situation based on what, what I've already seen is already happening. Okay. Yeah. And I know somebody in the composites field who, who has done subcontract work for them and they, they have a very strict grading system for their suppliers, it's hard to get an A, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and that's fine. I love, I love standards. Um, and, and for folks who don't know, like the aircraft manufacturers have been doing this for a long time. Uh, the customer, for example, determines what engine goes on or engines go on the plane. Uh, the customer says, I want a Pratt and Whitney or Rolls Royce or whatever. Uh, it's not the aircraft manufacturer that does that. Uh, they just, they make the plane <laughs> and, uh, and, and they have the specs and they say, look, you need engines that do this. They don't have this horsepower or whatever to be able to, to move this uh, vehicle, but they're not going to tell you exactly what you need. So that's cool. And, and the insurance issues have already been, you know, liability and all that have been uh, taken care of in that marketplace for a long time. And so I'm sure that could be brought across uh, to here where you've got, you know, a main manufacturer of the body of the thing and then something else being put on it and then that being used by maybe even a third or a fourth party, right, uh, to, to achieve something. Well, I think we should finish up there, Tim. Uh, that was a lot. This is, this is uh, one of the longer episodes, but I definitely want to have you back on because I personally know, having talked to you a little bit, we just scratched the surface of stuff that, that yeah. you no know, one could talk about. Um, and the more that I get to know you, the better uh, I will be able to focus in on like specific topics and that kind of thing. I think we, we covered the hell out of the two main ones that I wanted to look at today. So I appreciate that a lot. Um, where where is the best pe- place for people to connect with you if they want to do that? Yeah, you know, LinkedIn is is a, by far the easiest way to get a hold of me. Uh, I, I work in a, a setting where uh, I can't have my cell phone very often, hmm. um, which is a mixed blessing, right? It removes yeah. the distraction, but it also cuts off communication. But uh, folks are welcome to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, please leave a little note of who you are and why you want to connect, right. um, especially if you not to be rude about it. If you, if you have a foreign last name, I have to be extra cautious. Um, so please, I, I want to connect with you, but you got to, yeah, let me know who, let me know who you are and what you're about. Right. 
right. Well, awesome. Commander Timothy Anderson, he goes by his full name if you're Googling that or, or uh, LinkedIn searching for that. Appreciate you being here. This has been really great. I look forward to you returning. I had a great time, Jason. Thank you. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the program. Thanks a lot for listening to the Cold Star Project. If you want me to send you new episodes of the Cold Star Project so that you don't have to go hunting around for them or watching YouTube or anything like that, go to this page coldstartech.com slash msb that's short for make space boring which is what we're all about and uh, drop in your email address there and i will be able to do that for you make space boring is another little show that i run it's a shorter format quick interviews and uh, news of the day and sometimes an update of who i'm meeting and what i'm learning in the space field it's on the same cold star tech channel speaking of which on the youtube channel i can do something i cannot do on the audio only version which is add playlists and so there may be topic area playlists on the youtube channel that you would be interested in digging into and going down the rabbit hole and learning uh, more about. For example, space law and policy, space situational awareness, the lunar mining and construction and fun stuff like that. So go check that out. Uh, that is at coldstartech.com play. That's the short link to get there. Anyway, thanks.